Before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have this freedom to gather together this evening to study your word, to once again recognize that you are the creator God, the sovereign God who has revealed yourself to us, and that in this, revolu- in this revelation there is an accountability that uh, is inherent in the revelation that we are accountable for it, and that we are responsible to you as your creatures. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, members of the royal family, there is an additional accountability and responsibility. And part of that is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to advance to spiritual maturity, that we can have an impact on the world around us through our uh, spiritual maturity and through our application of doctrine. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, that we would be challenged by the leadership exhibited by Elijah in this episode in his life, and that we might have a culture, a church culture, that produces men who are doctrinally oriented and strong in the faith rest drill, that they might stand firm as leaders just as Elijah did. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are going to pick up where we left off last night in chapter 18, verse 17, and John is going to turn the fan down. Otherwise, my notes, I looked up after I prayed, and the first three pages were already blown away, so I don't have any idea where we are. Okay, 1 Kings 18. Now, let's get the background on this, just to bring everybody back to the same place. Elijah had challenged, or really confronted, King Ahab in 1 Kings 17.1 with the statement that it would, there would be no dew or rain on Israel until Elijah's word. It would be Elijah's word. He is standing as a representative before God. So the first point in terms of our review is that Elijah as a prophet of God has the personal authority to challenge the king on the basis of the Mosaic law. And we studied that. We saw that in Leviticus chapter 26, as well as in Deuteronomy chapter 11, there was the promise from God that if the nation turned to idolatry, they would go through various cycles of discipline. And the fourth cycle of discipline is outlined in Leviticus 26.19, indicated that God would make the sky like brass and the ground like iron. In other words, there would be a drought, there would be no rain, and this would be an economic disaster and bring on a period of economic depression, instability, which of course destroys any sort of political administration. And this was part of the reason behind this sort of a harsh judgment from God. And so what Elijah is doing is not operating in and of himself. He's not just some believer who's sitting out there and he's angry with Ahab because Ahab has married Jezebel and Jezebel has imported the fertility religions, the phallic cult, and everything that went with it from Phoenicia to Israel. He's not just angry operating on his own. As a man with the gift of prophet and who's been designated by God with this office, he has the role and responsibility within the structure of the Mosaic Covenant to challenge the king. Now that takes us back to an extremely important principle that we derive in this country, and, and it's been part of at least English law and recognition since the Reformation or post-Reformation period, and that is that the king or the executive branch of government operates under the authority of law. We believe in the rule of law, even though the uh, tyrannical despot sitting in the Supreme Court no longer understand that. We believe in the rule of law, and that means that there is something objective and absolute 
that sits over the the human executive officer who rules the country. The king is not does not rule by divine right. There was a very famous tract uh, written in England in the 1700s called Lex Rex. Law, the law is king. It is not the king. It is the law that ultimately reigns over the king. Now, we got this in our history from the Mosaic Law. Because the king, and there was always a recognition that there would be a king in Israel. This was seen in the Mosaic Law because there are rules and regulations in the Mosaic Law for how the king would operate. One of the rules that uh, the king was to operate under was that he was to read through the entire Mosaic Law every year and hand copy it. He didn't just read it because you know how it is. You read two or three verses, your mind goes somewhere else, you start thinking about this. That, next thing you know, your eyes have gone down the page, but your brain didn't. So, the king had to handwrite a copy of the law every year to make sure he is mentally engaged with what the Mosaic Law said, because he is under the law, and he is the executive officer in charge of application of the law. But the king was also under somebody else. Now, who was it that the king is under in terms of a human? It's the prophet. Who is it that anoints the king? We see Samuel coming to Saul, and Samuel anoints Saul to be the king. And then when Saul violates the law, it is Samuel that comes and says, your disobedience and rebellion is like witchcraft, God's going to take his Holy Spirit from you and anoint another king. So the king served under the prophet. The prophet is the one who announced and in some cases executed judgment, physical, capital punishment. And that's again exhibited in the same episode by Samuel because... What had happened in that instance is that Saul had uh, had been responsible for defeating the Amalekites. He was to engage them in holy war. It's the last instance of legitimate holy war in history. And he was supposed to destroy every man, woman, and child. And he was supposed to kill all of the cattle, all of the sheep, all the animals. And the reason is, is that, number one, God is eliminating the evil of the Amalekites from history. They had gone far enough in its time like a cancer to just go in and cut them out. And the reason that all the animals are supposed to be killed is because the Jews weren't supposed to profit from the evil of the Amalekites because the Amalekites were sort of like land pirates. They were uh, nomadic and they just went through the ancient Near East and they attacked all kinds of cultures and they just took all kinds of booty with them. And so this wasn't inherently theirs. And so the Jews weren't supposed to profit from their evil. And Saul didn't quite go along with that. And after the battle, he left uh, the king, King Agag, alive. And he didn't slaughter all of the sheep and all the cattle. And like most people who are not oriented to the grace of God or Bible doctrine, what he did is he's going to use religion, not the truth of God's word, but religion, to justify and provide a facade and a cover for his activities. We have a lot of politicians today that are doing the same kind of thing. And so Samuel comes to his headquarters, palace, and says, what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? And it's all the sheep and the cattle that Saul didn't destroy. And Saul says, well, I thought we'd just make an offering to the Lord. We're just going to use all this. We didn't want to kill it. We'll give it to God. You know, that's always, let's justify it with some religious reason. And then Samuel looks over, and there's Agag in chains. And what's Agag doing alive? And so Saul said, well, you know, I thought we'd exercise a little grace. So Samuel reaches over and grabs Saul's sword, whirls around, and just decapitates Agag on the spot. Now, that's important background for understanding what Elijah is going to do when he comes to Mount Carmel, because he is going to execute judgment here on the basis of the Mosaic Law. He is functioning as a prosecutor and in that role of a, as a judge and an executor 
of the mandates in the Mosaic Law. So, as we saw last night, he is on his way to Ahab. God spoke to him in 18.1, told him to go to Ahab. The, the three and a half years of drought are now over with, and it's time for God to uh, challenge the people with his, uh, with his mandates, with the realities of the Mosaic Law, and the necessity of their obedience to the law. That's what Mount Carmel is all about. It's not about proving the existence of God. They don't doubt the existence of Yahweh. What it's about is enforcing the mandates and accountability in the nation to the Mosaic Law. And on the way, we studied last night that he met uh, this guy, um, Aholiab, on the way, and he is, uh, or excuse me, Obadiah, and Obadiah is a just a wimpy believer. He won't stand up. He's the, the number two guy. He's over, he's over Ahab's house. And that is a term. It's like Nehemiah was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes in the book of Nehemiah. Cupbearer was almost uh, as powerful as a prime minister. It is the uh, highest position of authority in the land under the king. And so the head of the household, when uh, Obadiah is the head of the household, that means he has a high government official. He's number two, number three person in the land. But he's a believer. He fears the Lord, and he hides prophets. He does good things, but he won't take a stand. If he took a stand, he would lose his life. And so he lacks moral courage and spiritual courage because he isn't a mature believer. And I pointed out last time that he represents so many believers who stay in various organizations from politics to business to ministries to seminaries, and they, they watch the leadership compromise various doctrines and various policies and various practices, but they don't have the, the spiritual courage to stand up and say, this is wrong, because if they do, they'll lose their job, and they think that, well, there's some higher good. And all of this really warps a person's soul. And so Aholiab, I don't know why I keep calling him Aholiab, Obadiah is a picture of this kind of a wimpy, uh, immature believer. Well, he, he demonstrates that when Elijah says, go and tell Ahab that I'm coming. He goes, why? What have I sinned? What sins have I committed that you're going to send me on this mission? And, of course, nothing bad happens. See, God protects the believer when he sticks his neck out biblically. And even if you do lose your job, boy, that's a great thing because God's going to take care of you in the process. And b- believers need to stand together for the truth no matter what the cost. And our founding fathers understood that in a lot of ways. They knew that they had to either hang together or, indeed, they would hang separately. I was so encouraged this morning. Somebody wrote an editorial into the Norwich Bulletin, and in the last three sentences he called for a new revolution. But then he said, but we don't have anyone left of the stature of Franklin or John Adams or George Washington. And as we watch the government once again in tyranny erode our freedoms, we need men and women of conviction who will put everything on the line. I forget what the statistics are, but you've heard the story that of those who signed the Declaration of Independence, almost all of them lost everything that they had, and many of them were extremely wealthy men when the revolution began, but it cost them everything they owned. In some cases, a couple of cases, it cost their lives, and in many cases, it cost their health and their families. And they never recovered from that. But that's because they were men of integrity and they understood that they served a greater vision and a greater purpose. Well, this is Elijah, and he knows that he is serving the Lord, so he is coming to meet Ahab. And he meets Ahab, and in verse 17 we read, Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And the first thing we note here is that Ahab is blaming is blaming Elijah for the troubles that Ahab has brought on the nation. And this is so true of arrogance and human viewpoint. They constantly blame the believers. They blame those who are operating on divine viewpoint as the source of the problem. 
And we're catching that today over and over again ever since this last presidential election when you would think that if, that, uh, the entire Republican Party was nothing more than evangelical, biblically based believers. And there's a lot of truth to the fact that, that those who were, uh, biblically oriented, uh, voted for a Republican in this last election because that was a better choice than the alternative. But that doesn't mean that that's the only thing you'd vote for if you were a Christian. It just means that that's the, he was the most consistent. Of course, he is extremely disappointing in many areas. Uh, Houston's basically become a little Mexico in the last few years. And if you go to Arizona or New Mexico or California, the, just the floodgates are open. And, uh, and nobody seems to care about these things. And this is how this nation has been destroyed more than anything else is through immigration. Now, I'm a great believer in immigration, but I remember when I first moved up here back in um, back in '98. Charlie Clough made the observation, and he's a he he really has his roots in New England. If you don't know it, his grandparents are buried right up here near Putnam, and uh, he said, you know, New England went negative back in the early 19th century, and once an area goes negative, it never recovers. And the only way I would, the only reason I would challenge that is while New England did go negative, they, they moved. The heirs of the Puritans went west. They followed Horace Greeley's advice and they all went west. What replaced them? Immigrants from southern and eastern Europe. Roman Catholics. And now you look around at Rhode Island, you look up at, with the, all of the Irish as well that came into, to, uh, Massachusetts and, uh, uh, you know, eastern Europeans brought a non-Protestant form of Christianity into New England, and this is what set the stage for the deterioration of the beliefs in absolutes and the conservative foundation that was traditionally part of New England. And all that you have left of that original conservative tradition is just little remnants of things like folks who don't really want to change anything. You know, we have old buildings we don't want to tear down and get into progress. So, uh, but that's just a remnant. But there's no longer the doctrinal reality behind those little things. And that's true in different parts of the country. I'm not just beating up on New England, but that's, that's what happened up here. So what happens is people blame believers for the troubles they bring on through negative volition. And Elijah responds in verse 18 and says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you have forsaken the commandments of Yahweh and have followed the Baals. Now, this is a powerful statement. Elijah's not backing up for anybody. And I pointed out the first night that Ahab was perhaps the greatest military leader of his day, and he was a tremendous politician. And he had amassed tremendous power. And at the snap of his fingers, there were goon squads that had been searching high and low all over the northern kingdom and Phoenicia and the Transjordan, up into Syria and down into Judea, looking for Elijah in order to uh, punish him for his announcement of divine judgment. So here Elijah confronts him face to face, and he's not going to back down which shows that his real power and authority wasn't based on who Elijah was, but on Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine is what gives us the courage and the strength to do what is right, no matter what the opposition may be, no matter how powerful it may be in human terms, and no matter what the consequences might be. Now, Ahab is operating in self-deception, and he's blaming Israel, I mean, blaming Elijah for Israel's problems. And the real problem is that the northern kingdom has succumbed to pagan thought. And they've tried to assimilate paganism with the truth. And so we go back to our basic chart here. On one side we have human viewpoint, and the other side we have divine viewpoint. Now, divine viewpoint represents the unified truth that is presented throughout all of Scripture. Human viewpoint has its source in man and human thought. Divine viewpoint has its source in God. God speaks and communicates to man. He tells us who we are, 
He tells us why we are. He tells us what our problems are. And he tells us what his solution is. But man, in depravity, seeks to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. So God speaks absolute truth. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. This is in contrast to all human viewpoint systems of truth, which always boil down to different forms of relativism. And you see this exemplified in its most stark confrontation when you see the when you see Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate says, Well they claim that you are the Son of God and Jesus said you've spoken the truth and Pontius Pilate says, What is truth? In a very skeptical matter, well what is truth? There's no such thing as truth. And here he's confronted with the Lord of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, who is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so you see that confrontation. Man in carnality and depravity rejects the concept of absolute truth. Why? Because if there is an absolute truth that is universal, that is over man, that dictates to man, it implies accountability, that there is a spiritual and a moral accountability. There is an authority to whom man is answerable. And in carnality, in rebellion, self-absorbed arrogant man has bought the lie, the temptation that Satan offered, that if you eat from the fruit, you'll be like God. And he wants to be like God. He doesn't want accountability. But God says there is accountability, and there are consequences for rebellious action. And so, there is the challenge that comes at Mount Carmel. Furthermore, because you have this relative concept of truth, whoever's in power gets to determine the truth. And so, truth and religion are used to control Mankind to exercise tyranny over mankind. See, either your authority comes from an absolute universal God or it comes from man and man's institutions, which he deifies, or nature, which he deifies. But it's all used to control. Whereas under divine viewpoint, there may be absolutes, there may be laws and regulations, but it was, is within those laws and regulations that there is true and genuine freedom. So when absolute truth is the source of freedom, then it means that this truth sits over judges, kings, presidents, nations. And they are accountable to that divine revelation. And that's where Elijah fits in, because he's calling the king of Israel, who holds his position at the, under the authority of God, he's calling him to accountability to the Mosaic Covenant. And this is the next element that's important for us to understand before we get into this, is that this is a covenant application. The Mosaic Covenant outlines the blessings that God will give if the nation's obedient, and the punishments that God is going to instigate if the nation is not obedient. And as part of this, there were stipulations because the covenant indicates, the very concept of covenant indicates that there's a specific set closed document. Just think about it. You have a closed document that you signed when you got your Visa card or your MasterCard or whatever it was, and they can't come in and just willy-nilly change things on you. It's closed. They can be amended, but it can't be just arbitrarily changed. And whatever happens has to be consistent with that contract. Otherwise, there can be a basis for a legal challenge in court. Now, this is what happens, and that is a background for understanding two important passages in Deuteronomy. Let's see if I've got them up here. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. There are three passages that regulate revelation in the, under the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. 
And it prevents anybody from just simply coming along and saying, God told me to do this. I mean, everybody does that. If you want to justify yourself, just say it's God's will. I mean, we've all done that at some point or another, thinking that, that if I'm going to really make sure people listen to me, I've got to invoke the name of God. The Mormons do it. Islam does it. Everybody does it. But there's got to be an objective criteria to establish who is, truly speaking, from God's authority. So you have Deuteronomy 13.1. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass. Now let me just stop right there. See, what this is saying is this guy is going to perform miracles, and they're really going to happen. He's going to heal people. He might even raise somebody from the dead. He's going to create miracles, and they actually come to pass. So there's a message. There seems to be a confirmatory miracle. And then he says something. Notice the issue, the ultimate test, is not what he does, is not the signs or the wonders. It's the message. It's always the message that's the criterion. And so this... Dreamer of dreams authenticates his message with a miracle, and then his message, though, is a contradiction. He says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. In verse 3, you shall, God says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to see if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And the issue is, are, is the Word of God going to be more real to you than miracles, than experiences, and the things that get you all excited? And the issue is to walk consistently after the Lord your God, fear Him, and keep His commandments, verse 4, and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. What's the consequences? Verse 5, but that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death. This is the false prophet. You get a false prophet come along, the penalty is death, because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of bondage, etc. Now, the other passage is Deuteronomy 18.20. So Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18 are your key passages that govern Revelation. Your criteria for the truth is consistency with previous Revelation. Now, just as a sort of a side note here. If you study both Islam and Mormonism, what they claim is that the books, that their holy books, the Koran and the Book of Mormon, were addendums that corrected previous revelation, i.e. the Bible. Now, in the Bible, you have ongoing revelation, but it never corrects previous revelation. It's always consistent with everything that's been said before, so that everything you have after the Mosaic Law from Joshua to Malachi, is really a commentary on how God is forcing the nation to be consistent with the covenant. All all those books are called prophets. You've got the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. You've got the latter prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, the Twelve. All of those are the prophets, and the role of the prophet is to enforce the covenant. (coughs) Now, in Deuteronomy 18, you have another situation. A prophet comes along, and he claims to be speaking in God's name. God told me to say this. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord... If the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. And so the consequence was death. So there's two tests. One is consistency with everything else that has been revealed by God and operates and has passed the test of validation. The second test for the prophet is that he has to be 100% correct in all of his prophecies. That's why in many cases the Old Testament prophets that prophesied about distant events that would not be fulfilled in their lifetime 
also gave predictions about things that would take place in their lifetime, so there would be an objective point of validation for their particular ministry. But what I want you to note from both Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 is that under the Mosaic law, the penalty for a false prophet was death. And that's the background also for understanding what's happening in this encounter. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 19, Elijah issues a challenge. Now therefore, send, send all uh, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Let's have a meeting. And this is Mount Carmel from a distance. And apparently there was an altar that had been there traditionally. We don't know when it was first constructed, probably in the early uh, days after the conquest. But this was a major site uh, where... Uh, where God was worshipped. Now, I had another map up here last night. Let me just black this out. Here's roughly the coastline of the Mediterranean. Here's the Mediterranean, and here's the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, and down here's the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is here. Uh, this is the Transjordan, this is roughly the area where the brook Kareth was. Samaria was located over here. And so Elijah went to Samaria. He went back to the brook where he was fed by the ravens. Then God told him to go to Zarephath, which was up here in Phoenicia. And Mount Carmel is located near the coast, just about here. So that gives you the travels of, of Elijah. Here's another shot from another angle. This uh, shot is from the south, and it is genu- uh, generally believed that the, this event, the altar, wasn't at the very top of the mountain, but somewhere on the southern uh, shoulder of Mount Carmel. This, again, is another shot from the west showing the uh, rugged terrain around Mount Carmel. And then this is a statue that is constructed on the traditional spot where this took place, a statue of Elijah standing tall with a sword with his foot over one of the prophets of Baal whom he has executed. So he calls for a contest on Mount Carmel. And in this contest, there are seven statements that he makes. Uh, Ahab gathers everyone together in verse 20 calls for all the children of Israel, and there's a huge crowd, and he gathers the false prophets on the mountain. And then we have Elijah's first statement in verse 21. Elijah addresses the crowds, and he says, How long will you falter between two opinions? How long are you going to try to assimilate the truth of God's word on the one hand, the worship of Yahweh, the true God, and Baalism, on the other hand, you're trying to live as if both are true. That's a real modern ring to it. Most Christians are trying to do this. They, they, they are so uh, filled with the human viewpoint of our day that they just go to church. And in fact, I was talking with someone the other day, and she said, you know, my, my uh, niece was telling me she gets more out of the praise and worship songs at her church than she does out of the sermon." I thought, boy, it's really sad, but it's a tremendous commentary on the 15-minute sermonette that it just doesn't have any content because the praise and worship stuff has no content as well. So this is what's happening today. People are, 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 are just filled with this cosmic thinking, and then they just try to attach God to that and some Bible verses to make them feel comfortable that somehow their emotionalism is a genuine Christianity. The result is that they're double-minded. This is what James addresses in James 1, 5 through 7, or through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith. That is, literally, it's an instrumental dative, by means of faith, without, doc, without doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, 
For let that not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man. And the word there in the Greek is disukos, meaning two-souled. He's not like the Romans 12.2 believer that has transformed his thinking by renewing his mind with doctrine, but he's conformed to the world and he is literally living in two worlds and so he is unstable in all of his ways. So the nation of the northern kingdom was unstable. Then in verse 22, we have Elijah's second statement. He says, I alone am left of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, he's wrong in his, presu- uh, in his presupposition there, his premise that he's the only one. He's going to find out later there's 7,000, but at this point he thinks he's the only one. But he is standing against the not only Baal's prophets of 450, but also the 400 of the uh, priests of the Asherah. He goes on to say, Therefore, let them give us two bulls. And let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. Put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, and I will put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods. This is the challenge in verses 22 to 24. You call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, It's well spoken. Now notice here the people agree. But in verse 21, the people, when he initiates the challenge, and he challenges them, how long will you alter between two, or or falter between two opinions, the people didn't say anything. See, people don't like to be challenged. So they're not responsible. I think that this is probably a very resistant silence. uh, the, The military used to have a a thing called silent uh, insolence. And this was a, uh, a court-martial offense. And I think that's what the response of the crowd was. They are not willing to listen to Elijah. They have rejected God. They've been on negative volition. And they're hoping that uh, somehow the priests of Baal will solve their problems so they won't have to submit to God. And then in his second statement, he proposes this test, this challenge. And the test is not to show that God exists and that Yahweh is the real God. It is going to be a covenant ceremony and challenge them with their obligation to serve God as God's people. These people do not have a problem with believing in the existence of Yahweh. They just want to believe in all the gods. Okay, so this isn't like you're trying to prove the existence of God. What he's demonstrating here is that God has a right to tell the people how they should live, and because they have been freed from slavery from Egypt by God, they are obligated to serve him. So there is a moral and spiritual challenge in this uh, episode. So he calls on, there's a challenge here, and in verse 25, they're to have this contest. So the prophets of Baal are to choose a bull. See, Elijah gives them the deference. You choose your bull, you build your fire, we're going to give you every single advantage to prove that your God can uh, burn up the sacrifice. So you take your bull, you prepare it first. Uh, for you are many, then call on the name of your God, but don't put any fire under it. So they took the bull, which was given to them, prepared it, called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, screaming out, O Baal, hear us. And you can just see him. They're dancing around. They're chanting. They're screaming to Baal to, to uh, burn up the sacrifice. And there's no voice. There's, there's no answer. And then they're leaping about, trying to get his attention. And as noon approaches, Elijah begins to ridicule them and begins to mock them. He says, cry louder. Wake him up. He's asleep. Oh, maybe he's meditating or maybe he had to take a trip to the outhouse. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's sleeping and he's got to be awakened. Come on, shout a little louder. So he eggs them on. Then they really get worked up. And in verse 28, they cry aloud and they begin to cut themselves as was their custom. Notice that. It is the blood of the priests here 
that somehow is supposed to sway the God to do what they want him to do. And they cut themselves with knives and lances until the blood gushed out from them. I mean, this is a bloody scene. Now, this is the contrast between religion and Christianity. Religion tries to impress God with its own works. It tries to impress God with its own good deeds. And in religion, man is trying to engage in ritual or good deeds or good works or whatever they're going to do and to get God's attention and his approval and his blessing. But in Christianity, as in biblical Judaism in the Old Testament, the issue isn't works. The issue is faith in the work of God, relaxing and resting in God so that God does everything and man is simply relaxed and trusts God. And that's what we'll see when we come to Elijah. And there's also another contrast here. And that's the contrast between the ineffective blood of the priests of Baal and the efficacious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the physical blood of Christ that's saved, but that blood represented his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross. And the emphasis was that Jesus Christ died spiritually. He was separated from God judicially between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when the darkness covered the, covered the skies. It's not his physical suffering. If you saw that movie, The Passion of Christ, it's not the physical suffering. See, that's the distortion of Roman Catholic theology. It is not all of the beating that was efficacious. It is not the physical suffering even on the cross. It is what happened between 12 noon and 3 p.m., which was just barely even indicated in that movie. But that's when God judged Jesus Christ for our sins. The Scripture says there was darkness that covered the earth so that men could not look on the agony on the, that Jesus Christ went through. It's significant that he never screamed during all the physical torture and he was, he was whipped and flayed alive so that his bones and his, his intestines were exposed as the muscle and the skin was ripped off of his back, and he was beaten in his face until no one could recognize it. And the, the, the movie, as I understand it, did a tremendous job picturing all of this through special effects, but not nearly as much as, as what actually happened. And yet Jesus never uttered a word as he went through all that physical torture. And the point was to, to contrast the physical pain and torment that he went through, which didn't cause one peep, and the agony he went through when the sins first hit him, and he screamed out to God. Because all of that physical torture was nothing compared to the pain he endured when your sins and my sins hit him on the cross. And so the contrast between religion and and biblical Christianity is the contrast between man trying to work his way and impress God with his own efforts and the legitimate death of Christ on the cross, which is represented by the blood of Christ that was substitutionary. And so all we have to do to be saved is to simply trust in Christ as our Savior. So these priests are out there cutting themselves and dancing around, trying to get Baal's attention and they're just not getting anywhere. And this is uh, actually Elijah's fourth statement because he is contemptuous. This is verse, in verse 27 where he just says, Go on, cry louder. So they leap around. And then his fifth statement comes in verse uh, 30. In verse 30 he says, Okay, everybody gather around. He wants everybody to see what's going to happen. Everybody get up, get up here as close as you can. And all the people came near him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Key point, there's already an altar there. He didn't just choose this place randomly. He chose it because it was a special site in the history of Israel, and he is rebuilding the altar is a sign that he is repairing the breach in the covenant, with, with, in the Mosaic covenant between God and Israel. And he indicates that because he builds the altar with 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And verse 31, he took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And then with the stones in verse 32, he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seas of seed. Now, what's happening here, and I want you to notice throughout this whole passage, he it uses the word Yahweh to refer to the Lord. And that's important because Yahweh is the personal name of God, which has a particular significance to the covenant with Moses. Even though Abram knew him by that name, and Isaac and Jacob knew him by that name, it is the name that is particularly associated with the Exodus. Remember, God appeared to uh, Moses and said, you're going to deliver my people. And Moses said, well, okay, God, but when I, when I go to them, who shall I say sent me? And God said, tell them that Yah has sent you. And he said, okay, well, what does that mean? And God gives them the meaning of the name for the first time, that it means I am who I am. I am the self-existent one. And so this name, Yahweh, is the name that is particularly tied to the Mosaic Covenant. So this whole passage is loaded with covenant terminology, and it's a renewal ceremony. And so I just love this part of the story. This is just so great. He builds the, builds the altar, and then he digs his trench all the way around it. And, you know, this took some time. This is slow. Everybody's watching. What's he doing? He's digging this big trench all the way around. And then he tells people to go fill up four water pots with water. Think about this. What's been going on for the last three and a half years? Huh? There's been a drought. Where do you get the water? You get the water because you have to take a hike and you have to run down the edge of the side of the mountain and you have to go out to the Mediterranean and you have to fill up the pot and then you have to bring it back. And he says, fill up four water pots with water. And they have to go through this. He's forcing them to work. They are going to participate in this ceremony whether they like it or not. And then he says, pour it on the sacrifice and pour it on the wood. Let's soak it down. And then he says, let's do it a second time. And then let's do it a third time. He's going to wear those people out. But he's going to make sure that the altar is soaked through and through, so much so that the water runs off the altar and fills the trench. This thing is sopping, soaking wet. And then at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, this took like three hours to go by while they're filling up the altar and soaking everything down. And he came near, and he has a very simple prayer. No jumping up and down, no beating his breast, no uh, gashing himself. He doesn't have to do anything to gain God's attention. He simply addresses him, and notice how he addresses him. First word, Yahweh, significant to the Mosaic Covenant. Yahweh Elohim, of Abraham, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. What's he doing here? He's reminding them that there is a greater covenant relationship than the Mosaic Covenant, and that's the Abrahamic Covenant. They've been chosen by God. And the Mosaic Covenant was simply uh, a temporary covenant given under the umbrella of the Abrahamic Covenant. He prays, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Simple prayer. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are Yahweh Elohim, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Notice the last phrase. This isn't about information. He's not proving to them that Yahweh exists. The goal is to challenge them to change. This is what the word repentance means. It simply means to change. It doesn't mean to have remorse. It doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sins. It simply means to change your thinking. The word there in the Hebrew, turn their hearts back to you again, is the word shoe, to turn back. And that's what repentance means. So we have to understand that the ultimate goal in apologetics, and last night I talked about apologetics, 1 Peter 3.15, that we are always to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And I said that apologetics has two aspects to it, defensive and offensive. Remember I said defensive apologetics is answering the questions. 
How do you know that God created and it wasn't evolution? How do you know that Jesus lived? How do you know that there were miracles? How do you know Jesus uh, was raised from the dead? And we answer those questions. But apologetics isn't merely defensive. You can't win defensively. It's also offensive strategy. And the offensive strategy demonstrates that the unbeliever's human viewpoint position won't work. He's built his house, his mental house, his hopes, his dreams, his whole understanding of life on shifting sand. And oftentimes when we're witnessing what we have to do before they understand and will listen to the gospel is we have to impress them with their own mortality and their own failure. Now, I'm going to give you a, I'm going to tell a little story. Something just happened to me. And uh, as an illustration of this principle. In 1970, I graduated from high school, went to college on a four-year Army ROTC scholarship. And I went to Stephen F. Austin, and the commandant of the ROTC unit there was sent there very reluctantly, which is another interesting story. But when he got there, he had just come out of Vietnam, and he, he didn't want to play little drill, te- drill games and everything. He wanted to teach young men to be able to lead troops in combat. And, I mean, he was just remarkable. He was one of those rare leaders who really understood what his mission was. And in those four years that he was there, we cranked out two. At this point, there's two guys serving who are brigadier generals. There are probably 20 guys who have reached 06, and there were, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 guys at least that went into special forces, and a lot more were airborne ranger. And it was because of his influence. And I remember going into his office when I was a freshman and giving him a book called War, Moral, or Immoral. And I gave him a book called Freedom Through Military Victory, and I witnessed to him. But... He was always very skeptical about Christianity. He probably threw him in the in the uh, trash can. And but over the years, uh, many of us have kept in touch with him. We've had reunions over the years. And in fact, the last thing I did before I left Texas to come up here in '98 was to go to re- a reunion. And once again, I'd had an opportunity to witness a little bit to this man. Had a picture of him with me on my wall up here and when I was uh, living up here. And then uh, in April, I found out that he had cancer, and he lives, had retired to Nacogdoches, 150 miles north of Houston, and he was traveling down every other week for chemotherapy. So I went down to the hospital, sat with him, had several sessions, gave him a spiritual warfare book. Uh, we didn't really talk about spiritual things. I wasn't going to press anything. He went home and apparently read some of these things. Next time, he was a week later, he was down on, uh, for chemo, and he said... Uh, um, let me ask you a couple of questions about uh, what you believe. And so we spent three hours going over the gospel. And in the course of that time, I think he probably got saved. There's sort of a time there when people shift in their questioning from, okay, I'm going to find out if this is true, to, okay, now that I believe this is true, I, I need to know what I believe. And it's just sort of an imperceptible shift. And I, I wasn't sure, though, if he was saved, so I called a friend of mine who was an evangelist and I knew would really nail his hide to the wall. And I said, go down and see him. This guy was also had been special forces, so they had the military in common. And he went down there and said he understands the gospel, he understands grace. I'm not sure, though, if he's saved yet. Well, I sent him home. He'd asked me to get him a couple of books, and I sent him Plan of God and uh, matter of life and death, and I got him Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He read all of that, read Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and when I saw him about a week later, he read 300 pages in evidence, uh, when I saw him a week later, he said, okay, I believe in God, I believe Christ died for my sins. Made that statement two or three times in the conversation, and it was, it was clear but, and he, that he, he was saved. And he's made different statements since then that have indicated that, and we've had many more conversations. But what had to happen? I mean, this is perseverance in witnessing, folks. This goes over a period of almost 35 years from the first time uh, I gave him the gospel. What had to happen in there? God had to come along and do exactly what Elijah's doing here. He had to put him flat on his back with cancer, a serious form of cancer, before he recognized that what he was leaning on for hope in his life wasn't going to work. 
And sometimes that has to happen that way. Other times, it just through conversation, we just uh, kick the slats out from under him. And that's what Elijah is doing here. He's he is taking away all the religious props of the northern kingdom and challenging them to turn back. And as soon as he utters his prayer, this fire just blasts out of heaven and hits this soaked altar. And consumes everything. You could imagine the cries, the astonishment, and the people falling down on their faces as this happens. And it uh, consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, everything just evaporates. And the people are standing there with their mouths open. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. What has Elijah done? He has operated in terms of apologetics on the offensive. He has destroyed the arguments of the competing philosophical religious system. Now the people are ready to listen to the truth because their pseudo-truth has been uh, destroyed. And then in verse 40, Elijah instigates judgment on the prophets of Baal and assuming that the uh, 400 priests of Asherah are there also on them as well. He says, seize them, and then he takes them down to the base of the mountain, to the brook Kishon, and he executes them. Now, he is functioning in the same way Samuel did when Samuel executed Agag. He is functioning as an officer of the heavenly court, as it were, uh, f- fulfilling the obligations of the Mosaic Covenant. And there is no place in Scripture where Elijah's where this act is ever questioned or any doubts ever cast upon this act. This is the pinnacle of his authority. But then he has to challenge Ahab. He says, go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of abundant rain. Now, we're about out of time, so I just want to hit a few more points before we're, we're done, just to give you the epilogue. He challenges Ahab to go have a snack and eat lunch, or dinner rather, because it's the evening hour, And Elijah goes to the top of Carmel, bows down to the ground, puts his face between his knees, and he's praying. And he's praying now that God would end the drought and bring rain. And so he calls to his servant, says, go look at the sea. And he goes and he comes back and says, I don't see anything. Clear blue sky, sun setting out there, and see forever. Seven times Elijah sent him back. See, that shows perseverance in prayer. He's confident. And it came to pass the seventh time the man came back and said, There's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. And so Elijah said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down before the rains come, or you're going to get caught in the floods and get washed away. So see here his respect for Ahab. Even though Ahab is the most evil king they've had in the north, he is showing respect for his office. See, that's one of the things we have to remember. We may have losers, personal losers in the presidency, but they hold a high office in the land, so we give them respect, not because of who they are, but because of the office they hold. Now, isn't that the great contrast between President Reagan, who wouldn't even go into the Oval Office without putting on a coat and tie, and some later presidents who... Well, we won't go into that. Desecrated the office. You have to have respect for the office. Same thing in a marriage. You ladies, you're under the authority of your husband. He may be a real loser at times. When he gets under the control of his sin nature, he may just be hell to live with. But guess what? He has the office of authority in the home. So that means you respect him because of his office. Not necessarily because of who he is. Those are hard lessons to learn. But Elijah understands this. He has respect for Ahab as the king, and he tells him to hurry home before the rain stops him. And while this is going on, the skies just become black. There's clouds and wind and rain, and Ahab heads home to Jezreel. Now, there's a danger here, because if Ahab gets there, he's going to tell everybody, look, the prophets of, of, of Baal brought us rain. Isn't this great? He's going to put his spin on the story. So the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and physically strengthens him, and he girds up his loins, and he runs ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So Elijah gets there to tell the truth so that Ahab can't tell a lie.
Well, what happens at that point, and I just want to cover it very briefly. I don't have slides on the next chapter, but in the next chapter, we see that Elijah falls prey to his own victory. And this so often happens. And this is one of those indications that the Bible is written not by men, but by God. Because if you or I were writing this, we would just gloss over this next little episode. Because this doesn't make Elijah look like he's much of a spiritual giant. In fact, it makes him look like a real... A, a real loser. But see, that's how men are. We one day are strong spiritually and have tremendous victory spiritually, and the next day, well, you can't tell us apart from the unbeliever living next door to us. So in chapter 19, Ahab tells Jezebel about everything that Elijah had done, and now Jezebel puts out a wanted dead or alive uh, APB on Elijah. And now Elijah forgets everything God's done for him, and he just gets scared, and he literally uh, heads for the hills. And he goes to Beersheba. That's a 100 miles away down in the farthest southern point of Judah. And he, he wants to get away. He's not trusting God. And he leaves his servant there, and he keeps headed, keeps going south. The implication being, I'm giving up on everything I didn't win. Jezebel still controls the uh, secret service. Uh, Ahab is still in power. I've really lost. To heck with God, I'm out of here. Isn't that interesting how he's just absolutely gone into carnality? And I think part of the reason is, and I get this from the text. I'm not sure how it all fits together. But he has this run of about 40 miles from Carmel down to Samaria. He would be exhausted physically. He's worn out emotionally. All of this is part of the picture. And you see this because first thing that happens when he gets down in the wilderness and he just crashes and he's into self-absorption and woe is me and, and it's all worthless and why should I do anything, that an angel of the Lord comes to him and uh, provides food, sustenance, which indicates that And this is important for us. When we are tired and when we're not well-nourished and when we're not paying attention to our physical health, it makes us susceptible in our own soul to failure in a spiritual life. You know, I'm not blaming that. That's not the cause. It's another test. And when we're tired and when we haven't eaten... It, you know how easy it is for you. I know none of y'all ever get tired or grumpy or edgy or anything when you, you know, when you haven't eaten and you don't get your food or anything like that. But that's what's going on here. He's he's a man like us. That's what James five seventeen says. And that's what's happened. He's worn out. He hasn't eaten, and he just gives up. And just like Moses failed in the wilderness, Elijah fails here. And the interesting thing is both of these two men. Uh, go to heaven in unusual ways, or their death is surrounded by unusual circumstances, and we believe that those are going to be, those are the two that are going to be brought back as the two prophets in the book of Revelation. And that they were, uh, tr- had tremendous victories in many areas in their spiritual life and as leaders, but they failed in at particular times. And so, just as a closing note here, uh, God is going to demonstrate himself to uh, Elijah again. And Elijah goes down to, uh, to Mount Sinai where, where uh, Moses was. And he goes to a cave, which very well could be the very same cave where Moses was. So there's a, the scriptures clearly indicate this parallel between Moses and Elijah. And then in verse 11, God says to him, Go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And then there's an earthquake, and the Lord's not in the earthquake. Then there's a fire, and there's not a fire. And after that, there's a still, small voice. Now, I just want to address this. This is not a still, small voice inside of Elijah. This is the voice of God speaking quietly, indicating that it's not the manifestations of divine power that's important. It's what God says that's important. And every screaming, mystic, Christian, Baptist comes along and they want to make this the internal voice of God the Holy Spirit. It never says that in the text. 
the still small voice is part of the categories of external manifestations of God. And the voice of God is communicating truth. And what God is indicating to, to Elijah here is it's not the miracles. It's not the power. It's not the demonstrations. It is the doctrine communicated by the voice of God that is important. Now, as we wrap up, the one thing that we want to emphasize here is that Elijah represents the kind of leadership that is the potential for every single believer. And that doesn't mean that we're going to be the kind of visible heroes that the prophets were in the Old Testament. We don't live in that dispensation. But we can have the same kind of courage. We can have the same effective prayer life. This is what James says in James 5.16, that the effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much like Elijah, who was a man of like nature as us. That's the point that uh, the writer of James is making, is that we can have that same efficacious impact through our spiritual life and through our prayer life if we are as devoted to the Word of God as Elijah was. And when Elijah prayed, what was he praying on the basis of? He was praying on the basis of the Word of God. He understood the Mosaic Law. He understood Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 11 and Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. And so when he was praying, he was praying the Scriptures. He wasn't just praying for his own personal needs. He understood the Bible, and the Bible and doctrine shaped his prayer life. And so this is what made Elijah the man that he was, and the leader that he was. And that same power is available to us through that, through the Word of God. It's not the flash and the pizzazz and the miracles and all of that. It is the Word of God that changes our lives. It is the Word of God that prepares us for the future to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to just spend these three days focused on Elijah and these lessons for our spiritual life. Continue to pray for this church. Thank you for it, for its consistent testimony, its uh, devotion to the truth. And we pray that you would continue to guide and direct them in their search for a pastor, a shepherd, to lead them, to teach them, and to continue to provide that which they need to grow to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied, that we might go back over these notes and go back over these tapes, listen to them, and that the Holy Spirit would use them to encourage us, to challenge us, and to move us forward in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.